this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, where I serve as pastor, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. This week's passage is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, and it will be the basis of the sermon at First Free Methodist Church on September 25th, 2022. It's the third week in a series called Back to Basics as we explore the essentials of the Christian life. This is a well-known text in Matthew's gospel, often referred to as containing what is known as the Great Commission. We're going to look at this text in an unusual fashion in this particular episode of Passages. We're going to be looking at sections of the text out of order to help give some clarity to exactly what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do in this particular passage of Scripture. Let's start with first where the disciples are. And in verses 16 and 17, the first two verses of today's Scripture selection, we see where the disciples are. It says in verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated to them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Let's just stop there for a moment. The audience is clear. There are eleven disciples. Of course, Judas at this point has committed suicide following his betrayal of Jesus. So there are 11 disciples, not 12, and there's no mention of others. That doesn't mean there weren't others there. It simply says that the text doesn't mention any of the others except for those 11. And Jesus called them to that location. I think that we sometimes lose sight of what is happening here. It's the mountain which Jesus had designated to them. Jesus called them to be there. This has only happened one other time in Matthew's gospel, and it's at the transfiguration when Jesus goes up onto a mountain and he's transformed in his appearance, and he is standing with both Moses and Elijah. Jesus told the disciples exactly where to go. So this just wasn't some happenstance event. This was very strategic and thoughtful in what Jesus was telling them to do. What's interesting about what where the disciples are is not only the location, but what their response was when he appeared. It says in verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. So this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, according to the traditions of the church and from the biblical witness, this is 40 days after uh, Jesus's resurrection. And so here we find ourselves 40 days later, a little over a month, and we have many other stories of these post-resurrection encounters of Jesus, and this is the final one. And it says that when the disciples saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. The act of worship here is that Matthew describes as a, a bowing down. Uh, it's a physical posture that they assume out of respect, and it, it has mixed meanings. It's the same way you would greet a king or a ruler, or it's the same posture you would assume for some, some kind of divine worship. And so what's clear is that they understand Jesus in his exalted position. They may not have fully processed what that means, but it means that they at least recognize in that moment that that there's a certain bar at which Jesus stands and they're addressing him or posturing themselves in that way. 
But what's unique here is it says that some were doubtful. And in, in all the years I've heard sermons on the Great Commission, this short passage in Matthew's Gospel, I have yet to hear anyone talk about the doubt. Some were doubtful. There's a little bit of a controversy amongst uh, academics about what exactly this means. Some were doubtful. Were there others that were doubtful? Was it binary that there were those who were worshiping and those who were doubtful? Are those who were worshiping also doubtful? Were some of those worshiping doubtful? You see, it's kind of parsing this out. It can become kind of uh, mind-numbing for a minute. So there's a lot of controversy about what does that mean? Some uh, were doubtful. Most scholars agree that they all worshipped, that all 11 worshipped Jesus, but some of those 11 doubted. So it was true of, it was not true of all, but of some. So it was this interesting mixture of doubt and worship. There's a, a sense of uncertainty flowing in the middle of this episode that I think is critically important, that they act to worship even though they're still holding this degree of uncertainty And that opens up, I think, such an important key passageway to us, that healthy doubt, healthy doubt, or maybe a better way to say it is healthy uncertainty, is essential to faith. Faith, by its very definition, is an act that requires us to invest truth, confidence, and hope. And so if in our relationship with Jesus, if we have certainty about everything, then there's little room for faith. There's not much space for us to um, express ourselves through a faithful lens because everything has been boiled down to some sense of certainty. So what we learn out of this is that worship itself is not an act of certainty. It's actually an act of faith. And that certainty and faith are not necessarily opposites all the time. But what I just want you to hear is that there's a there's this nuance of doubt moving and flowing in this text. But yet, even in the midst of that doubt, that uncertainty, that kind of question that everyone's wondering about, there's still this movement to worship, that we can find our way to love, worship, and serve Jesus even when we feel uncertain or doubtful. This, for me, is a freeing verse for all of us because it accepts some of our human limitations and frailties that we see here, even in the disciples themselves, that healthy doubt or uncertainty is actually an essential ingredient to good, deep faith. Now, here's where I want to jump around in the text just a little bit. We've talked about where the disciples are when they arrive. They're worshiping but doubtful. Where is Jesus in this text? In other words, what does Jesus say about himself in this text? And part of that answer is in the beginning of verse 18. And part of that answer is in at the end of verse 20. Jesus makes two essential statements about himself in this text. The first is that all authority has been given to him. That's in verse 18. And then down in verse 20, at the very end of the verse, Jesus says that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. So let's talk about each of these one at a time. First, authority. What does it mean that all authority has been given unto him on heaven and on earth? What does that mean? Well, all authority, very important to recognize the universal power and presence of Jesus, that after his death and resurrection, he assumes the power inherit in his position and being. He is the resurrected one. He has defeated death. He has liberated all of humankind from the bondage of sin. So 
this kind of authority is so all-encompassing. It's it's beyond any notion of political or religious power. It's it's universal and, and complete, and that really helps us understand the scope of this power. Jesus says, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." So there's this scope of Jesus's power in heaven and on earth. Uh, and it's again speaking to this limitless authority Jesus has. Matthew's keen on using this phrase on heaven and earth. He uses it four different times in his gospel. It references a kind of authority that spans all earthly rulers and all heavenly ones. It's a different kind of authority that no one has ever held before. So when we read this text, the type of authority Jesus is describing to us is a little foreign. It's a little different because oftentimes when we think of authority, we think of systems of power. At times, we even think of systems of oppression and injustice. Jesus is describing a kind of power that's apolitical, and it doesn't have a kind of a political lens to it. So that's the first thing. There's this authority of Jesus. And then the second thing Jesus says in verse 20 is that I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus concludes this final statement in Matthew's gospel with something quite unusual. When we reach this end of Jesus's life and ministry before his ascension, take note that Jesus is not going to judge the nations and or restore Israel with this power he has. If you're wondering about that, read the beginning of the book of Acts that describes this episode where the disciples ask him at his ascension, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus isn't doing that at this time. Jesus is not going to magically make his disciples political or religious leaders. Jesus says that I am with you always to the end of the age, with That's the important word here. Jesus will accompany the church with his presence. He's going to accompany the disciples and the movement they launch with his presence. All authority of Jesus is now channeled and focused toward one end, being with the disciples. Let me say that again. All the authority of Jesus, that this infinite power, this infinite authority, this thing we've never seen before— is channeled and focused toward one end, being with the disciples. That opens up a key passageway for us in this text, that Jesus chooses to place all his authority in and with others. Oftentimes we think of the incarnation of Jesus, or as Jesus is coming in the flesh, as only applying to his birth. What we learn throughout the Gospels, and especially in this text of Matthew, is that that Jesus' incarnation is the, at his birth is the beginning of that incarnation. But Jesus' promise to be with the disciples unto the end of the age is an expression of that incarnation as well, that incarnate presence of Jesus in the life of the church. What does it mean for Jesus to take all this authority and focus it on being with us? You know, often we wonder how to live our lives and even how the church as as an organism or even an organization must exist in the world. What we easily forget is that we are not alone. All universal power and authority is directed toward us. But for what? 
for what reason is Jesus with us? The answer to that question is in the very center of this text in verses 19 and the first part of verse 20. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you. The grammar of this verse in Matthew, verse 19, the beginning of verse 20, is easy and it's important. There's one imperative and there are three activities or functions that comprise it. One imperative, in other words, one command, and there are three activities that happen in it. So let's talk about the imperative or the command first. That word is make disciples. It's in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples. So, in other words, that's the, even though it's not the first set of words in verse 19, it's the centerpiece of verses 19 and the beginning of verse 20. Make disciples. It's actually one word in Greek, not two words. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew is written in the Greek language, and it's one word. And what's strange is that this is a new word coined by Matthew to reflect what Jesus said. Keep in mind that Jesus likely spoke this to the disciples in a language called Aramaic, which is the ancestral language to Arabic. And the Gospels, though, these books that we're talking about here, Matthew being one of them, were written in the Greek language. So knowing what a disciple was or is, it's not really the mystery here. We know what the the noun for disciple means. What Matthew does here in in quoting Jesus is that Jesus turns this noun into a verb. It's not just disciples, it's make disciples, the process of making disciples. How, How do you make one? What is it to make a disciple? It becomes an actionable word, not just a noun make disciples. So let's start there. The imperative is to make disciples. That is the heart of the Great Commission. Make disciples. Then there are three activities that are that make up what making disciples means. And this is where it can be slightly confusing when you look at the text because the way it's translated is in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded to you, all I have commanded you. The three activities are go, baptize, and teach. So even though go is the first word in verse 19, the central word is actually make disciples. And we do that by going, baptizing, and teaching. Go, in other words, to the nations or to the Gentiles. The mission of the church is universal. And the gathered church, in this case, the 11 disciples there, must go. Go. The the second activity is to baptize. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word baptize in Greek, baptizo, means to dip. And the modality of baptism isn't really as important here as is the action of it. Baptism is about initiation. It's about entrance. It's about preparation. It's about becoming part of the community. It's about the affirmation of belief. And in specific instructions, Jesus says not to just baptize them in general, but to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
that baptism, the way Jesus is defining it here, is about identity. That in baptism, it's an affirmation of, of who we are a part of, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then the last uh, activity is teach. And that word for teach means to follow. Notice that Jesus does not use the word obey. He doesn't say teaching them to obey all I commanded you. It says teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you. It's a very unique word choice Jesus makes. And the word choice is careful. Jesus does not invite the 11 into a new form of legalism. As a matter of fact, Jesus invites them into something very different. What did Jesus command? Well, Jesus commanded that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In other words, what Jesus commanded were values. Even in John's gospel, Jesus says, this is the new commandment I give you, that you are to love one another. They're, they're not so much behavioral statements as they are value statements, and that is what's to be taught. What we teach, what Jesus commanded. So we teach the values, the principles, the truth of Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. So there are three activities. Go. In other words, you got to leave here. You got to baptize. You're going to initiate people into a new kind of identity, a new kind of purpose, a new meaning in their life. And you're going to teach them how to follow what Jesus commanded how to listen to the words of Jesus and to live a life that is consistent with those values. And that opens up our final key passageway. That Jesus places all of his power, authority, if you will, in us to make disciples. Now, over the centuries, there have been more failures on the church's part to do this than we could possibly count. The church has treated the Great Commission as some sort of geographic mandate. They've taken it as a political mandate. They've taken it as a colonizing mandate. They've taken it as a cultural conquest mandate. I mean, we could go on and on about all the different ways the church has failed over the centuries to embody this command of Jesus well. But there's a key here that we have to not lose. There's a key to fruitfulness that even in all the mistakes we've made in this space, that Jesus is the center of our going Jesus is the center of our baptizing, and Jesus is the very center of our teaching. This is what disciple-making is. Disciple-making is going, baptizing, and teaching. And it's not arrogant for us to assume that we can do this. I've heard it said over the years that uh, people have struggled with this Great Commission because it seems that we're stepping into space inappropriately. Like, who are we to make disciples of people? And I, and I would I would simply suggest, look at the totality of what Jesus says in this text. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and now it's given to us for a very specific purpose. That's, as with all things, you see, we're stewards of this authority of Jesus to make disciples. We can use it well, or we can abuse it. And so ultimately, this is about the authority of Jesus. It's not about knowledge alone. Discipleship is about transformation of people's lives, going, baptizing, teaching. It is not about information. Friends, one of the great tragedies of the church in these days is that they have framed discipleship as information. It's not. 
Discipleship is an experience of transformation in the name of Jesus. And that work, that work of discipleship, of making disciples, is the very heart of what we're to do. And as a church, it is the thing we do above all other things. And everything we do, in a sense, flows from it. Discipleship. I welcome your comments and reflections. You can visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News in the upper right-hand corner. You'll see a drop-down menu and select Podcasts. And then click on this particular episode and leave a comment. I'd love to be in conversation with you about anything that I've shared today on the podcast. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community of faith here in Seattle. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.